it has now become very clear that the leadership of Xi Jinping, both as the leader of the Communist Party in China and of the Chinese state, represents a distinctive new stage in the politics of the People's Republic of China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to the Real Story segment of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program is broadcast three days each week. If you want to support this independent programming, go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we'll be talking once again to Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an organizer with the peace group Pivot to Peace here in the United States. Dr. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be here, Brian. We have some interesting things to cover today. We really do. You know, Ken, we presented our seven-part, multi-part series on China's foreign policy since 1949. And we told everyone, this is it. We're wrapping up. We're done with our seven parts, almost six hours of programming. That's really a deep dive into the different stages and phases of China's foreign policy and why that foreign policy evolved or shifted or changed over the decades. But today we're going to be talking about a slightly different subject, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, is to focus on the distinctive function or the distinctive leadership of China's leader, Xi Jinping, because it is now quite clear that Xi Jinping represents a new stage in the politics of China. Of course, Xi Jinping is the fifth primary leader in China since 1949. There was the Mao Zedong era, 1949 to 1976. What might be broadly called the Deng Xiaoping era, 1978 to the early 1990s. Of course, between 1976 and 1978, there was another leader, Wa Kofeng, but his tenure was short and it doesn't represent a really distinctive or long-term stage in the leadership. Then comes Zheng Zemin, 1993 to 2002, Hu Jintao, 2003 to 2012, and Xi Jinping, who took office in 2013, just two years after President Obama announced the pivot to Asia. Now, his tenure is scheduled to go until 2022. And in the past, either under Hu Jintao or Zheng Ziming, having served a second term, a total of 10 years, that would be it, and there'd be a new leader. But the party rules have been amended, 
And it's possible, we don't know what will happen, but it's possible that Xi Jinping might return for another five-year term or even beyond that. So that's something that, of course, the Western media has picked up on it and said, well, this shows that Xi Jinping is a dictator, which is obviously a fallacy, certainly a fallacy because he might run for more than two terms. But let's just talk about the difference that Xi Jinping's leadership, the vision of it, what his priorities have been, what his obstacles are, how it's changed the party, perhaps the form of governance, the priorities of society, and the connection between the Chinese Communist Party and the population. Of course, there's the anti-corruption campaign. We want to talk about that. Something that Xi Jinping calls common prosperity, another important achievement that happened under Xi's leadership, although it didn't start there, was poverty alleviation. 850 million people who had been in dire extreme poverty, meaning making less than $2 a day, which is the world standards for extreme poverty. That happened also under Xi Jinping. But you've been in China, you've taught in China, you're fluent in the language. When you look at, say, Xi Jinping in 2021 versus the government of Zhang Zemin in 2001, a year before he left, in this 20-year span, it's been a remarkable shift. Well, it certainly has. And I think that you know, this shift, it's a shift that's underway, and it's a shift that in some ways seems even to be accelerating. There have been a number of fairly dramatic developments just in the last few weeks. I think it's really good that we're getting together today to carry on this conversation because the sort of trajectory or the arc of China's development and China's relationship with the rest of the world really is, of course, it's a continuing process. It's an ongoing sequence. And Xi Jinping's leadership has certainly brought us into a new era not just domestically, but internationally as well. And I think it's really good to review that. You know, thinking back 20 years, thinking back to the period when Jiang Zemin was in the leading role and then carrying on through Hu Jintao's period, this was an era in China when, in a sense, the Chinese leadership sort of chose a path of keeping a low profile, chose a path of going along, you know, getting along to go along, going along to get along with the world system, the global system, essentially dominated by the United States. And there were reasons for that. The idea that China had opened its domestic economy to foreign capital, to foreign direct investment, the idea that China was reforming things like the state-owned enterprises in various ways. All of this was a major program, what we call the program of reform and opening to the outside, the purpose of which was to use these market mechanisms to develop the economy. But this was going to be a long-term project. They understood it was going to involve certain contradictions, certain challenges along the way. But they were, in a sense, dependent or reliant upon this budding relationship with the outside world, with Western economies, with American capital. And so they chose a path of kind of, as I say, keeping a low profile and not pushing their own agenda out into the public eye quite so much. 
And that proved to be a reasonably successful period. The Chinese economy grew during those years at record rates. And China began to accumulate wealth, began to develop social capital, began to become a, as they put it, a moderately prosperous society. And I think what we see with Xi Jinping since 2013 is that China has achieved a certain level of of self-confidence, a certain level of accomplishment, which has allowed Xi Jinping to, in a sense, be a little more straightforward about what the mission really is, about, as he puts it, as he likes to put it, remembering the original mission of the revolution. What were the original goals of the revolution? To build a modern socialist economy and society. And so Xi Jinping has been a little more unabashed about that and has been a little more straightforward, I guess, forthcoming about that, has put socialism back on the agenda, back in the foreground. And I think that that has been very unsettling for political interests in the West. And it's led to some contention within China between the party and the government and the people and some of these new capitalist elements that have emerged and have been tolerated and worked with, collaborated with. But Xi Jinping certainly seems to be on a path of trying to ensure, as you mentioned, this program of common prosperity. And I think that's a very important change that we've seen come into place over these last, really this last decade, but certainly over the contrast of these last 20 years. Let's talk about the concept of rectification. Obviously, that has a long history inside the Chinese Communist Party. It's gone through different stages. There was the Yan'an rectification campaign between 1942 and 1945 in the northern part of China, led by Mao Zedong. That was during the last three years of World War II or the Japanese occupation of China. And just prior to the beginning of what amounted to the last five years of civil war with the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek's forces, and ultimately led to their defeat and the victory of the communists. And then the communists took power and created the People's Republic of China. So there was that rectification campaign. And that campaign, it seemed to me to be sort of focused on identifying that China and the Chinese Communist Party was going to be a very independent party, meaning independent from the Soviet Communist Party, which in the past, under the leadership of the Communist International, the Chinese Communist Party received basically instructions from Moscow, as did other parties, meaning that the Communist International was organized, that there was one world party. It was a united world party with different national detachments, but they weren't all autonomous parties. And as a consequence, what the debates and controversies that happened within the Chinese Communist Party sometimes reflected debates and controversies that were happening inside the Communist International or over the direction of the Chinese Revolution. Would it be a revolution based in the cities where the urban proletariat was headquartered or centered? Or would it be, as Mao argued, headquartered or anchored in the countryside, in the rural areas amongst the poor peasants, but 
among the peasants, generally speaking, not only the poor peasants. So there were all kinds of debates and controversies. And of course, debates and controversies over the issue of United Front. Do you unite with the Kuomintang or do you break with the Kuomintang? And there were different important periods where there were both United Fronts and United Fronts that ended, frequently ended in bloodshed. So anyway, there was a a rectification campaign. And it's really, in a way, the consolidation of Mao or Mao's leadership between 1942 to 1945 over the party. Then there were other rectification campaigns or campaigns in the 1950s, the Let a Hundred Flowers Bloom. Then there was, of course, the Cultural Revolution. Anyway, this is part of Chinese political culture. And in a way, Xi Jinping has gone his own direction with a new kind of rectification campaign, or at least that's how I see it. I'd like you to comment because you have gone through and seen the different phases and stages of how this is different, in what ways does it become different inside of China? Well, you know, the concept of rectification is one that has very, very deep roots within traditional Chinese political culture as well. The term we use in English, rectification, carries within it very, very similar semantic meaning to the term in Chinese. In Chinese, the term that gets translated as rectification is zhengming, which means basically to square something up to get the names, to get the words that we use to talk about things, to be properly aligned. And the word zheng in that compound literally means square. So it's like rectification, which is based on the idea of, you know, right angles and getting everything lined up properly. It's an interesting linguistic parallel. And that concept of rectification, as I say, it goes back deep in the history of Chinese political culture. And I think that, you know, the campaigns that you mentioned, certainly the rectifications back in the 40s and in the early 50s, the struggles with the Cultural Revolution, all of these are instances where political actors in China were struggling to bring reality, to bring the material realities of China and the political organizations, the political practices of the country into alignment so that they fit together properly, right? And I think that, again, looking back at this arc of the last 20 or even 30 years, that in a sense, that period where after Deng Xiaoping gets the program of reform and opening in place, there is that long period under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao where the party, especially the party, kind of backs off, kind of allows a lot of things to go on that were in some ways not entirely in line with the overall goals and objectives of the revolution, of trying to build socialism, but which were understood or which were thought of as being essential in the long term, you know, with a very long-term perspective to the process of developing the national economy, developing the material conditions within the country to allow for the beginning of real implementation of a kind of socialist program. And I think that to look at Xi Jinping and look at the work that he's doing now and the party and the state under his leadership, that this concept of rectification works very, very well. Because when he talks about not forgetting the original mission, 
staying true to the original mission. That, in a sense, is this same concept of bringing things back into their proper alignment. And, you know, the efforts, the steps that have been taken recently to sort of discipline capitalist elements within the economy, to crack down on certain institutional practices that have been emerging, the privileging of wealthy elements within the educational system, for example. We've seen moves against that recently. Efforts to rein in the activities of some of these high-tech companies. I think that all of these things show that the goals, the objectives, the ideals, if we can use that term, of the party and of the effort to build socialism, those are once again being used as the primary sort of template, the primary framework. And to the degree to which some elements, some practices within Chinese society have kind of drifted away from that, Xi Jinping and the party today are working to rectify that. Literally, it's a perfect use of the term to bring that back into a more proper alignment. And I think the same is true when we think about China's relationship with the West, with the wider world, that China had to, for a while, kind of subordinate itself, kind of integrate itself to a significant degree with the global capitalist system dominated by the United States and its Western allies. But now China is able to be more autonomous, more assertive, more able to chart its own path, not to turn its back on the global system, not to disengage from that, but to maintain that engagement with a perspective, with a, an alignment again, a rectified understanding of what it means for China to be an emerging socialist economy. And I think that it's a very big challenge, and it's by no means a process that has been completed. It's really just getting underway. But I think that that's the historic thrust of this period of Xi Jinping's leadership. 13 or 14 years ago, I had a discussion with a woman, youngish woman, like maybe 30 years old, who was working for a Chinese state agency. And she this conversation took place in the United States and she was a member of the communist party. And I asked her, I said, well, what's your views on Marxism? And she said, well, I don't really know much about it. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk about it because I am a Marxist and you're a Chinese member of the Chinese communist party. So I want to talk about it. And then she sort of indicated to me that her membership in the party might be really sort of a necessary box-checking exercise in order to get the kind of job that she wanted to get or to the kind of career that she wanted to get. In other words, not joining the party to make a revolution. Obviously, they had already made the revolution, but not really joining the party because she believed in Marxism even. So, in other words, as a career move. Now, when you're a ruling party, when you're in the case of China, there's 90, I think 90 million members of the party now, which is bigger than, you know, the population of Germany, including the children, or bigger than the population of France. You have to imagine that a lot of people join the party because it's the ruling party. And when you're a revolutionary party fighting for the revolution, you have just as much of a likelihood of dying in the struggle or maybe a great deal bigger likelihood of dying in the struggle uh, 
than you are of becoming, you know, sort of a mid-level management person in a company. And so the quality of people who join the party before the revolution is pretty obvious. They're ready to sacrifice, ready to make even perhaps the ultimate sacrifice because they believe in the cause, the unification of China, socialism, etc. But after the revolution could be for careerist reasons. Now, I had that long talk with her about Marxism, and she told me at that time, and we knew each other because I've been doing a number of media assignments with her company, and she told me afterwards, she said, this is the best explanation I've ever heard of Marxism. And I was like, oh, that's a bad sign. That's a really bad sign. And Xi Jinping, now 15 years later, is going back to the basics and emphasizing Marxism and emphasizing Marxism and at the same time purging the party of a lot of people who obviously were using the party for personal gain, who were engaged in corruption. Anyway, because you've been in China all these years, you know personally what it was like in the early 1980s or the 1990s or the earlier part of this century. And today, does what I'm saying sort of ring true with you in terms of the phenomena where Marxism just becomes, in some ways, a mouthed phrase versus a deeply held commitment? And do you also sense, as I'm sensing, that Xi Jinping is actually sincere and serious about rectifying that process and building a firmer, more basic and more you know, important understanding of Marxism amongst the ranks? Well, yeah, it's interesting that conversation that you had here in the United States. I've had conversations like that with a number of people in China. For a couple of years, I spent time in the summers teaching in a graduate program at a university in Hebei province. I was teaching, they wanted to know a lot about Western ideas about political economy. So I teach a course here at NMSU on global political economy. So I was trying to introduce ideas from that. And of course, I do that using a Marxist framework, a historical materialist framework. And what I discovered in the classroom, these were graduate students at a significant university in the capital of Hebei province, was that they really didn't know a lot about Marxism, that they hadn't read even basic texts like the Communist Manifesto, let alone the idea that any of them would have actually read something like Capital. So I was really almost dumbfounded by this. And I talked with the students about it, both in class and more informally, you know, outside of class. And what I learned at that time, this was so maybe 10 years or so ago, was that when they had political study, they didn't read the actual texts. What they read were these sort of abstracts and outlines and summaries and things like that. So, of course, they'd heard of these things, but they'd never actually read them themselves. And I found that to be very unsettling, and I was not pleased by that. And I think that that had become kind of the norm, that political education, if you will, or just simply the political quality of life and education in China had for a while been a little bit adrift. There's a Chinese thinker, a scholar named Wang Hui, and he wrote a whole book that is called Depoliticized Politics. And 
his argument in that book, which basically describes the 1990s and the very beginning of the 21st century in China, was that you know a lot of people in China just wanted to get on with their lives. They just wanted to have their jobs, make a living, go about their sort of daily activities, and not really think about politics so much. So long as the government kind of kept things in order and things kind of went along on a day-to-day basis, they were pretty much okay with that. But they were largely disengaged, depoliticized. And Wang Hui was not pleased with that, to say the least, and certainly has always been an advocate of political engagement and keeping the revolution as a living process. And I think that that reflects both the lack of Marxist education, real substantive Marxist education amongst those graduate students, and this sort of more generalized attitude of depoliticization uh, reflects the way that the country had sort of drifted there in the 90s and the beginning of the 21st century. And I think in part that that is an expression or a, a manifestation of just what you were talking about, which is the idea that even membership in the party, I think there's really about 95 million members in the party. One out of every seven adults in China is a member of the Communist Party. It's a big organization and it represents a high degree, or at least it should represent a high degree of political engagement. This is a lot of people who are working together to shape the future of the country. But I think that many people, and and again, some of these students that I talked with were very frank about the idea that, yes, they're joining the party, but they're doing so, you know, in order to advance their careers, in order to kind of get ahead. And, you know, in a sort of sociological perspective, that's certainly understandable, comprehensible. But if we take the ideas of the revolution, if we take the ideas of Marxism, if we take the program of wanting to build a socialist society, a socialist economy, an economy within which you know, people work and produce value, and then they share in a socially equitable way in the value that they have produced, if we take that seriously, I think we want to see the Communist Party and we want to see Marxism as a living doctrine as something that is much more dynamic and much more a part of everybody's lives in that process, you know. And so, again, to return to this idea of Xi Jinping and rectification, I think that's very much what he's talking about. I remember early on during his leadership, reading sort of almost kind of sarcastic news accounts in Western bourgeois media about how Xi Jinping was having members of the political bureau read the Communist Manifesto and discuss it and have their own political education things. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal or The Economist and others were sort of chuckling at that. It was almost sort of quaint, you know. But I think that it represented a very real commitment that has gone much deeper and much further in trying to, again, to revert to this phrase that I've mentioned a couple of times, to stay true to the original mission, to remember not to forget the original mission. So I think that when we look at the actions that Xi Jinping has taken, the policies that have been associated with his leadership, that this question of the revolution, of the mission of the party, of taking Marxism seriously, of taking the building of socialism seriously, I think that's been a fundamental commitment 
that he has sought to advance. And of course, that helps to explain why he's viewed so negatively by Western bourgeois media and politicians that they see this, you know, for a long time, they hoped that China would go down the path of, you know, maybe a color revolution or something. And now, oh my gosh, Xi Jinping is actually a communist. You can tell that they're kind of horrified by the idea. But I think that that's very much the program that he is seeking to implement. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to develop. When Mao Zedong died, within a very, very short amount of time, his main allies were arrested. That included Mao's wife and three other leaders of the Cultural Revolution. They were called the Gang of Four, but there were many more than four who were arrested. You know, earlier, the leader of the People's Liberation Army, who was also a principal leader of the Cultural Revolution, that would be Lin Biao. He obviously had a falling out with this other part of the left or Mao faction inside the Communist Party, perhaps over the question of the opening to the United States. And he died under mysterious circumstances, perhaps on a plane leaving for the Soviet Union in 1970-71. That was, that was a big deal because Lin Biao was actually named during the Cultural Revolution in the Chinese constitution as Mao's heir successor. In other words, the left faction was trying to constitutionally mandate that their faction would continue in authority after Mao's death, and the person of Lin Piao would be the heir successor. All of that broke apart in the struggle that took place within the Chinese left. Now, it was really, really difficult to understand what that struggle was about if you were outside of China, because the way it was described is very elliptical and with lots of allegories. And, you know, if you weren't Chinese and not there or not familiar with the language and the culture, it was hard to make heads or tails out of. But the point is, the split happened. And so the left faction was sort of divided. And then Mao dies in 1976, and his sort of colleagues are arrested, the leaders. And then there's Deng Xiaoping, who was the target, really, of the Cultural Revolution, along with the other top leader of the Chinese party, Lu Xiaoqi, who was technically the head of state. They were both the principal targets of the left faction, which described them as capitalist rotors, meaning they wanted to use capitalist methods for China's development. Both sides, the left, if you want to call it the left of Mao or the Deng Xiaoping or Lu Xiaoqi faction, they both agreed that the main goal, the main need was to develop the productive forces in China, but they differed over what the methods should be. Should there be the use of capitalist property relations, the allowance of a market to develop, the integration of China into the world economy, which meant really to integrate into the world capitalist economy because capitalism dominated the world economy? Or should it be more self-reliant and more sort of dependent on China's own internal resources? So that was kind of how I'm vulgarizing it a little bit, but that's more or less how the struggle played out. Now, the way the Xi Jinping leadership and the other Chinese leaderships that came afterwards, including the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, 
is they did not emphasize that this change was the consequence of a struggle, but like each new leadership built upon the foundations of the earlier leadership. And so the emphasis was on continuity rather than struggle or change. But of course, there was struggle and there were changes. And, you know, how the Chinese Communist Party presents it is one thing. But for us as independent revolutionaries or Marxists or independent progressive people trying to have an objective view, like an independent and objective view, you know, we take note of the fact that as these different leaderships came into formation, they also did represent sharp differences of opinion. Now, Deng Xiaoping says, and the Deng Xiaoping leadership said that Mao and Mao's leadership was indispensable for the victory of the Chinese revolution. I think they argued that Mao was 70% right, but 30% not right, and that they were going to you know, take new steps. But the new steps included a very dramatic change, which was to open the economy to market forces and to open the economy for direct foreign investment from abroad, meaning the opening up, the great opening up. Now, when you think about the Xi Jinping leadership, which now comes you know, 40 years later, Xi Jinping is also emphasizing, in a way, the continuity from the earlier period rather than the struggle. And he's emphasizing that Maoism and Mao's leadership were indispensable and key. And he's emphasizing some of the elements that the Mao leadership also emphasized, such as mass participation, rectification, personal study, serve the people, while also adhering to the opening up concept, economic reforms, allowing market forces at least to play some role. Anyway, I'd like to get your take on all of that. That's a lot to get a take on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, obviously the transition from the first 30 years of the People's Republic and the the struggles to build socialism, the initial alliance with the Soviet Union and the assistance that came to China via that, the breaking of that due to ideological differences between the Soviets and the Chinese, which caused severe economic disruptions in the early 60s, the political style or the working style, if you will, of Chairman Mao and those associated with him, which relied on a kind of mass mobilization model, the idea of utilizing the labor, the enthusiasm of the masses to serve, in a sense, as a kind of social capital itself to rapidly develop the economy. That was very much in contrast with the approach that Deng Xiaoping and Liu Xiaoqi and others took, which was much more a sort of emphasis on the the challenges of economic development, the need for technical competence, the need for sort of expert management and leadership, the idea of the discipline and the focus on development that needed to be led by the party. As you said, everybody was interested in developing the economy. Everybody was interested in trying to create the material conditions to move towards socialism. But there were very, very sharply divergent views of how that should be carried out. 
And Mao in particular, Mao and his followers in particular, were especially concerned with the question of bureaucratization. When we talk, as we were talking just a few minutes ago, about people going into the party, people joining the party, you know, to advance their careers or because they thought that was the the safest or the easiest path to an easy life, a more prosperous life. Bureaucratization, the way in which the party operates, this became a big concern in the late 50s and the 60s, and certainly I think has remained one since then, that the party needs to be an expression of the masses, of the working class. And if the party begins to function as a sort of autonomous institution, if the party becomes alienated from the masses that it is supposed to represent, you know, we don't want to use the term representation in the way it's used in bourgeois politics, that you just vote for people and they go off and do their own thing. The party should embody the interests of the masses, of the working class. And if that slips, if that goes away, if the party starts to think, you know, we know what we're doing, we're the experts, they should just listen to us and do what we say, then you have some very serious problems. And a lot of the struggles in the late 50s and the 60s and the 70s were around that question of the relationship of the party to the masses. You know, the Cultural Revolution was an effort to have the masses directly intervene with and supervise the activities of the party, you know. And there were all kinds of complexities in that struggle, and we don't really have the time to go through every detail of that right now. But suffice it to say that after the death of Chairman Mao, when Deng Xiaoping emerges as the principal leader in 78, 79, and puts the program of reform and opening in place, that is a significant political shift. It's still and certainly has been directed towards the goals of developing the economy, creating the material conditions for the beginning of the transition to true socialism, but it has been conducted in a way much more in line with this view of the primary role of the party, the primacy of the party, the discipline within the party, and all of that. When we get now, you know, in this last almost 10-year period now to the leadership of Xi Jinping, once again here in talking about this, I see that, you know, he's not interested in rehashing the conflicts of the 60s, and he's been pretty clear about that. But he's also been very clear that he believes in a political style that is more engaged with the masses, that moves beyond this depoliticized model that Wang Hui talks about, back to one that calls upon the people to play a more active role, calls upon the people to be mobilized, to be engaged under the leadership of the party, but in a way that activates the talents, the commitment of ordinary people, not just the members of the party, although certainly that's a priority, but broader social strata as well, to have people be engaged, to have people be involved. So I think that that's a He's sometimes accused, again, in Western bourgeois media of being some sort of neo-Maoist. But what they mean by that, of course, is pretty negative, that he's going to bring back you know, what they consider to be the chaos and the turmoil of the Cultural Revolution and things like that. And I don't think that's what's on the agenda. But I think what is on the agenda is a reactivated party, a party in which Marxism is taken seriously, in which, as we've seen through the anti-corruption campaigns, people who are just in it 
to advance themselves, their own interests, their own personal agendas, to enrich themselves at the expenses of the society, those people better watch out because the party and the government are going to be much more under the limelight, much more under the supervision of forces aiming to have, having a rectification, aiming to bring things back into their proper alignment. So, yeah, I think that Xi Jinping and his leadership and the party under his leadership is definitely trying to re-engage with a more mass-oriented political system, political culture. When he talks about common prosperity, that's what he's talking about, is having something that is participatory for the broader masses of the Chinese people. I think it's also important that we bear in mind, and this discussion highlights this in some ways, that the Communist Party, it's not a monolithic entity. If you listen, again, to bourgeois commentators and even bourgeois scholars in the West, sometimes the Communist Party sounds like it's some sort of lockstep, rigid mechanism that Xi Jinping somehow, I don't know what, just pulls levers here and there and the party does whatever he says. you know. And that's just not an accurate representation of the realities of party life. The party itself has numerous differences of perspective, people who are in the party, including and most especially those who are committed to the mission, those who are who think of themselves as Marxists, those who embrace and endorse and work actively for the vision of a socialist future. You know, there's still differences of opinion about this policy or that policy, this way of doing something versus that way of doing something. The party has an internal life of debate and discussion and contention, and we need to bear that in mind. It's not, you know, he's not a dictator, it's not a dictatorship, and the relation of the party to the masses is not a dictatorial thing. These are all dynamic, multifaceted processes that play out in ways which, again, as you say, if you're not Chinese, you don't read the language, you don't understand what's going on in terms of what's being said and done, it's difficult for outsiders to sometimes comprehend and understand. It's a political culture that is in its origins and in its elaboration very different from what we have here in the West, from what we have in a bourgeois political system here in America. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own internal dynamism and its own internal, the ways that they work out their political issues and political differences. We need to recognize the political realities and the political dynamism of the Chinese system in its own right, in its own framework. Ken, the party has gone through many different challenges over the years. And the political struggles between the different factions, whether it was during the Cultural Revolution or even in the 1950s or the Cultural Revolution where you had Mao and the people who were later identified as the Gang of Four and Lin Piao and many, many, many others, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who were engaged. Those struggles were over, you know, real problems. Like, how do you create socialism in a society that was 1966 as the Cultural Revolution starts? You know, just so people put that into some historical framework, that's only 17 years after the revolution. And, you know, if we had a revolution in the United States tomorrow, in 17 years, I'm quite sure that all the vestiges of what's wrong in American society, inequality, 
you know, some people have lots of money in the bank and some people, many people have nothing. Some people have had the advantages of going to higher education and other people are, you know, forced out of school, you know, almost literally forced out of school before they finish high school. There's people who live in urban areas. There are people who live in rural areas. There's all kinds of inequalities. And those aren't going to be wiped away just because you have a revolution or because you nationalize the means of production. You know, the affluent are still affluent. The poor are still poor. The question of how to overcome inequality is going to be a big issue. And then in the case of China, it's not only inequality in general, but it's the underdevelopment, which is the legacy of the century of humiliation and imperialist intervention and imperialist domination, where China, an affluent society, you know, in general speaking, in aggregate terms, was turned into a poor society, not because of its own internal failures, but because of imperial domination. So there's this extra problem, the problem of overcoming the legacy of underdevelopment. So there are so many challenges. And then international imperialism, which dominates finance and has the biggest armies and air forces and navies constantly menacing you and threatening you, that's another challenge. And then in the case of China, when it's when imperialism was able to play the Soviet Union and China off of each other and sort of magnify and amplify and make even more exaggerated the differences between them. So China found itself at a certain point isolated. You know, all of those challenges, it can't but, you know, lead to political struggle. And again, for people who are, I'm just taking your words here, the people who are not Chinese, don't know the language, don't know the culture, have only a rudimentary sense of anything that's going on. And I include here people who are leftists or who are Marxists, they can come to generalized conclusions about what China is, what its social or political or class character is, what its direction is, based on such fragmentary information that it's really like almost an exercise in arrogance to try to, you know, sort of pretend that you know what's going on or where it's going, which doesn't mean people shouldn't have their own views or independent observations. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying, you know, if you live somewhere else, you have to stay mum about China, but there needs to be a degree of humility about, you may very well be basically ignorant about a very big and complicated topic, the topic being China. So in 2006, I worked with other people in the Party for Socialism and Liberation to co-author a book called China, Revolution and Counter-Revolution. And the purpose of our book was to make the argument that those on the left inside the United States or outside of China who had decided based on China's reintroduction of capitalist property relations, allowing foreign direct investment, uh, pursuing policies that did indeed exacerbate inequality as a developmental model, in other words, to, as a way to draw technology into the country, that a big part of the left had said, well, all is lost in China. It's now basically just another capitalist country. They say it's socialism with Chinese characteristics, but it's really capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And there's nothing to defend anymore about the Chinese revolution. And the basic argument of the book, written by those of us who are 
decidedly not experts on China, was to say, yes, we share the fear about class inequality, the class divide, the the promulgation of pro-capitalist ideas, the influence of imperialist soft power in China in the realm of education or culture or media. We're worried about all those things too. But as long as the Chinese Communist Party, which has its roots in the Chinese Revolution and its roots and perspective in socialism and communism, uh, granted that there are many different debates and controversies and factions and trends, and if the Communist Party of China holds power and is not overthrown as the Soviet Communist Party was, then if the country is going too far in this direction or that direction, the party can make an adjustment. The party can, in fact, if it's asserting that things are too far in a pro-capitalist direction, can move in a socialist direction. As long as the party holds power, it has the ability to move to the left. But if the party were to lose power, that would be a catastrophe for socialism and also for China's national development. In other words, China, with all of its imperfections, is in a superior situation as long as the Communist Party retains power. Now, here we are 15 years later after we wrote that book. You know, some of it is very valid and good to read, and some of it is somewhat dated. But I feel that the turn and the policies articulated and implemented by Xi Jinping actually validate that political position because it seems to me that what Xi Jinping is doing is moving to the left, that there's a crackdown on monopoly capital inside of the country. There's the holding of people who are elites accountable through the anti-corruption campaign. There's a new focus on anti-environmental pollution. There was the targeted poverty alleviation campaign, which was a success. 850 million people brought out of poverty. That's more than anywhere else in all the rest of the world combined. The way the party handled, and a very in a sort of socialist way, the COVID-19 pandemic and did it successfully. This is an indication of the vitality and robustness of the party and the ability of the party to move to the left, again, which would be impossible if it lost power. Anyway, that was the thesis of the book. I think the thesis still holds, and I think the thesis is being vindicated because Xi Jinping is doing just that. He's moving the party to the left. But I think, and I want to get your opinion both on that, but also on the idea that the fact that the party amended its rules so that Xi Jinping could, if needed, go into a third term before there was a term limit to two terms, that would be an indicator to me that those forces who are working most closely with Xi Jinping also understand that this is an unfinished fight and that it's a fight that's likely to go on and on for some time and that his own leadership might be, in fact, decisive in this process. Yeah, I think that that's a good reading of the current situation very much. I think that the continuity, the stability of leadership is important. This is a, it's a 
it's a transitional phase that China is in right now, and it's rather a fraught situation. The social forces, the class forces that are in contention in China, you know, that's not a 100% clearly resolved situation, even within the party, as we've been talking about. There are different positions within the party. There are many people in the party, not just down in the lower ranks, but at all levels within the party who may have a more careerist uh, perspective or who may, you know, in a variety of ways, really see the path of capitalism as something which uh, which maybe they think would be better for China. It's There's a range of opinion. There's a range of ideas involved. I think that is very much still a work in progress and that the challenges and the contradictions along the path are by no means fully resolved. I don't think that that it's a I don't think it's an entirely shall we say done deal. So I think that personally at this point I think that the, it's likely that uh, Xi Jinping will be uh, reelected and will continue on for a third term and you know it's I don't want to speculate much beyond that but I think that the emphasis on continuity right now is likely to prevail. And that of course be criticized and lambasted in Western bourgeois media and probably by some on the Western left as well. I think that your discussion just now about the perspectives on the part of people who are, you know, socialists, who are Marxists, who are committed to to the revolutionary vision and to the goal of building a more equitable and, and just world. Uh, many people in the West, uh, on the left, because of their their understanding, their reading of the historical record from the Maoist period to the period of Deng Xiaoping up through the early 21st century, you know, it's certainly not unreasonable, as the PSL's book itself articulates, to have some concerns. You know, I certainly felt that way as well. The question of the capitalist road, the sort of re-emergence or the spontaneous generation of capitalist practices, systems, ideas, consciousness within China in the period of reform, these were very, very real concerns and certainly remain substantive concerns. I think that what distinguishes our position, the position that you and I, I think, would share, is this belief, as you put it, that so long as the party is in place, so long as China remains a political system within which the Communist Party is exercising that leading role, within which the socialist, the basic socialist infrastructure of the core economy, the state-owned enterprises and things like that, so long as, as that remains the case, so long as the party is there to try to guide, to try to manage the course of development, that it remains an open struggle. It remains a work in progress. It remains an endeavor, an enterprise, a venture, which is worthy of support, which requires our support. Not that we're the ones who make the key decisions or we're the ones who make determinations about this, but as committed socialists and revolutionaries in our own country, we view the situation in China from a position of solidarity and, and internationalism. And so I think that uh, you know, I, I understand those on the left who are critical of China, who are anxious about China. 
my own view more sympathetic, more engaged, and I am willing to extend a certain level of credence and support to Xi Jinping and his leadership and the party under his leadership and their efforts to to rectify the struggle and to remain true to the original mission and to pursue the goals of, of the material development of the economy to the point where true socialism can begin to be implemented. And I think that that's a worthy enterprise and something that we ought to support. But I do, as I say, I acknowledge that people who are critical of that can also be sincere in their own vision of socialism and their own commitment to socialism. I disagree. I think that China is is on a good path and a path that's actually getting better and is worthy of our support. But, you know, I recognize that it's a complex field. Indeed. What I'd like to do, Ken, I know after we completed our seven-part series on the Chinese foreign policy, I coaxed you by saying, what about one more show where we can talk about Xi Jinping's distinctive leadership and the policies? But actually, if you are open, I'd like to do a follow-up show because we're sort of talking about this right now in broader strokes. And what I'd like to do is drill down and see the political, social, and class aspect of Xi Jinping's policy when it comes to things like common prosperity, which is which is clearly a new theme in China, and it's clearly a theme that's designed towards equality and eliminating inequality, bridging the gap between urban areas and rural areas or between the East and the West. There's the anti-corruption campaign, which we only, you know, touched on. I think the anti-corruption campaign, I want to I'd like to go into that in more detail to talk about what that actually means and what it looks like. The crackdown on big capitalist firms, the efforts to increase equality among students, very, very far-reaching specific programs. In other words, there's a lot more, Ken Hammond, to talk about in terms of Xi Jinping's specific policies. And I, I'm wondering if you're available to come back and I keep promising it'll just be one more show, <laughs> but how about it? One more show. Absolutely. I think that there are so many important things, as you say, in a very concrete and substantive way, the things you've mentioned. Also, you know, as a follow-on to our lengthy discussion of China's foreign policy, I think that looking at things like the Belt and Road Initiative, looking at China's relationship to other countries in terms of support for their struggles with the COVID pandemic, I think that it's not just a matter of the domestic situation within China and the dramatic developments that are taking place there, but also the, uh, you know, China's relationship with the developing world, with working people around the world. I think these are also things that we can take a closer look at. So sure, sign me up. I'm ready to carry it forward. Excellent. 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 That was Dr. Kent Hammond. He is the professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He is a founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. He's an organizer with Pivot to Peace. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back Tuesday with our segment called In the News. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
we can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 